the crowd urges her on. The rest turn, and they won't even be able to see the feet of Katie Ledecky. She's so far away from them. Ledecky, gold medal. Ledecky, world record. Katie Ledecky of the USA reigns supreme yet again. We are the dumbest podcasters on earth sometimes. We'll break down the fourth wall. We spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out what the highlight would be. Yeah. We totally ignored the most obvious thing of playing poor Elliot Friedman orgasming that Michael Phelps lost to Ryan Lochte in the race. I, I don't remember that. The one race where Phelps and Lochte were like in lane four or five. You didn't hear about this? No. This was all over everything. <laughs> They were in lane four and five, and Elliot Friedman, who usually is like uh, Bob McKenzie for CBC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For some reason, as part of their coverage, he was forced to do swimming. So he's calling the last 50 of the race like Lochte is Phelps and Phelps is Lochte. So he's just going crazy about how Lochte's going to beat Phelps, and Phelps isn't even going to meddle, and on and oh, on and on. Oh, he had the wrong guy? He had like... the wrong guy. <laughs> So it just goes quiet for a second, and he goes, I'm very sorry. I had the wrong guy. It was actually Michael Phelps who won. You know? <laughs> so and he got beat up on on Twitter, but not too bad, actually. I actually got in a debate with a few different people on Twitter because someone made this point. Uh, our friend from Awful Announcing who plays the board games. Okay. Uh, I was talking to him about well, it. Andrew yeah, Buckholtz. Yeah, I was talking to him about it, and I was like, it's easy for Canada to let him off the hook because he didn't ruin a Canadian moment. Mm. How would Canada have reacted if Penny, um, what's her name, uh, Alexiak, Penny Alexiak, who was their star of the Olympics probably, is about to win gold, and he accidentally says that Katie Ledecky won the race. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have been as forgiving. I, yeah. I didn't think it was an interesting debate with really no answer because we don't know. But I feel like the the clip I heard here wasn't the clip I heard on TV, so I'm not sure what. But Canada was playing the old "Oh shucks, look at how nice we are." We didn't ye- we didn't yell at the guy on Twitter for fucking up. <laughs> but I just kind of thought that they had an easy out because. Yeah, why would they? Who cares for them? Who cares if he screwed up Michael sure. Phelps' moment? Right. But anyway. Suddenly, it's August 25th. We didn't expect to be gone this long. Initially, we waited a week because we wanted to keep Joe Buck on top for mm-hmm. a second week. Usually, when we get someone as big as Buck, we we like to leave it up as long as we can. So, we kind of took a... Especially in the summer. We kind of took a planned week, but then I ended up in the hospital for a week. So, now, all of a sudden, we haven't done a show in God knows how long, uh, which means we got a lot planned for this week. And I guess we'll set it up like this. This is Season 6, Episode 22. It's August 25th, 2016. That'll be the date of this show. First guest on the show today is S.L. Price. He is fresh back from Brazil. Uh, He returned uh, yesterday. And um, I spoke with him today on Thursday for about 40 minutes. He's going to be the first guest. We'll do the 5 on Fantasy after that. Then our yearly 
let's talk with Aaron Schatz from Pro Football Outsiders. Uh, the Almanac is out. He was nice enough to send me a copy of the Almanac this year, which I really appreciate. I want to thank him for that. And uh, we talk uh, about his book and what it can do for you as a fantasy player and some of the predictions it makes, specifically the Cleveland Browns, Don. They simulated the season one million times. How many times do you think in those simulations the Browns hoisted the Lombardi Trophy? 72. 700. 700. Okay. So about one out of every 1,300. <laughs> so their odds aren't good. What are their odds in Vegas? I'm asking questions. Yeah, it's much lower. Probably. It's like 500 to 1. Oh, okay. So Vegas isn't giving you that kind of money. No, that's true. So they're not giving you – they don't do that anymore, especially the year that Leicester City or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, won Premier League. So we'll do that, and then we'll end with one last thing. We're going to do a special tribute to the Tragically Hip and one last thing on this show. There's also going to be another show – That'll go up today and will kind of be active all month. Uh, and on that show, we have a college football preview with Bruce Feldman. We have an interview with uh, Danny Kelly, who's one of the staff writers, NFL staff writers at Ringer. And Don and I are going to do our over-unders on there and make some other predictions. So that episode will be live as well during the month. But this is a normal episode with SL Price and Aaron Schatz, and we'll start it with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So while we were gone, the Olympics happened. They sure did. And I'll say this about the Olympics. The stars were stars. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it, it always seems to work that way, except for when we were kids. Remember the promotion, the Dan The two decathlons. Was it Dan and yeah, Dave or and something they both like that? Lost. And they were both terrible. Total, total bust. But that was, that was, they were all over the commercials leading up to the Olympics. But other than that, it seems like the women's gymnasts always live up to it. Uh, Michael Phelps has lived up to it every year. Yeah, Phelps was awesome. The whole first week was basically swimming, and I watched a ton of it. Yep. Uh, Phelps was awesome. Ledecky was awesome. Yeah, she's she's unreal. Um, the Iron Lady or whatever from Hungary. Did you see her at all? With a crazy husband on the deck. I did. And yeah. got, she got beat out by the American on the last race. And yeah, he was silver. nuts. That was fun to watch. So I enjoyed the swimming. And then I didn't watch as much of the track and field and the stuff the second week. Because like I said, I was in the hospital. But I did get to see all three Usain Bolt's races and... Yeah. I mean, every time you see the guy run, you wonder if he's human. I mean, he just... That was an interesting thing Faster here. than everyone. I assume most of our listeners are in the States, but the NBC promotions were always like Ledecky or one of the other swimmers, and they were dancing, and they have the Brazilian uh, girls behind him, like the Carnival dressed up. They also included a lot of the time uh, Usain Bolt. Like, he's just a guy that we don't care that he's not from America. We want to see him just... A good runner, and he's really likable. And well, in that last relay race, which the U.S. ended up finishing third with getting DQ'd in, it was basically a dead even race when everyone took the baton for the last what is it hundred, and yeah. he just ran by everybody. Yeah, yeah, he's nuts. So the U.S. women were maybe the soccer. Is that the disappointment of the Olympics? I mean, first of all, the 
Embarrassment, I hope so. Oh, obviously, Lochte is going to be the huge <laughs> embarrassment, embarrassment of the yeah. Olympics. You know, he's the USA hockey team trash in the locker room this year. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But Hope Solo got herself in trouble. Apparently, she's cut. I told you before, I thought it's a little disingenuous to cut her because they don't need her right now. It's not like the World Cup is in a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, she's officially suspended for six months, too, whatever that means. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're she, just tired. She's of done her, this her whole career. Her shit, I think. When she was a backup, she said that she should be the starter. I can't remember the, other, the name of the other goalie, but. When they lost, when they got eliminated, she kind of did the yeah. same thing, went public about mm-hmm. how she should have been the goalie. It's it's a bad sportsmanship move. I'm not sure that it's cuttable. I mean, <laughs> anything said in the NFL is 100 times worse than what she said. It's the worst they ever finished in an international competition like that. Uh, so that's a disappointment for them for sure. USA Basketball dominated that. Yeah, I, that was hard to watch. A couple mean, I, close games, but in the end, I mean, they won the gold medal game by many points. Yeah. So, Carmelo Anthony actually has more gold medals than anybody in the history of Olympic basketball. That was, a, that was a spectacle the first year when they put the Dream Team together. Right. And not that the games were competitive then either, but it was just something, maybe it was more star-driven. Well, they had 11 Hall of Famers out of 12. Well, right. <laughs> so that'll do it. Yeah, a lot of star yeah. power then. It's just, I, I, don't, I don't see the draw, and NBC must not either because it's not really highlighted. Anything else Olympic-wise? No, it's always fun. Like I said, so we'll see it in I two got years. slightly burnt out on it toward the end. but In South Korea? Is that right? Winter Olympics are in South Korea in two years. I don't think there's going to be NHL players there, unfortunately. So we'll have to go back Weird. to seeing what the Olympics is like in the winter without the NHL. Because we've had it since 1998. So it's hmm. a whole generation of Olympics. And it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. I mean, it could happen at the last minute, but it's going to take kind of a last-minute miracle. So. Yeah. But... We'll see two years from now. Uh, we'll be in South Korea. The world will be watching. Uh, NFL stuff. I knew this would be the preseason that never ended, and it is the preseason that never ended. Although, imagine how long the preseason must be if you are a San Diego Chargers fan. We thought when the last lockout happened oh, I know what that the one good thing yeah. about it would be there wouldn't be any holdouts anymore. And that's been true for every year for every team until suddenly the Chargers get the third pick, pick Joey Bosa from Ohio State, and it's starting to look more and more like every day like he's going to be in the draft again next year. And they're just going to burn a third overall pick because they want to defer part of the money to March or something strange. Yeah, what, what is who is looking bad here? Is it both oh, sides? the Chargers. Just the Chargers? Oh, God, yeah. Wow, nobody's they... gonna nobody's gonna sympathize with owners who want to defer money. Okay, you know what I mean. Like you're just not gonna. So this is totally different than the, especially when every other pick literally signs has worked out. Yeah, I'm thinking the the similar situation in the NHL with the with Jimmy VC. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, but... and we talked about how both sides like it doesn't reflect great that you can't sign your players, but it also looks like a punk kid that. Right, there was nothing Nashville could do. They put the they sure. put the maximum offer out there, and right. he just wouldn't sign it. In this case, there is obviously more that the Chargers can do, and every other team apparently has found a way to do it with their picks. And this isn't the 29th pick, or like if a, they lose a kid if with they problems really, or anything. If they really let the third overall pick sit out, and they went and they made a public statement yesterday saying that 
Their last offer was their best offer, and that's now off the table because it's past the point where he can contribute for 16 games. So they're no longer offering a contract that would reflect the 16-game schedule. Because what? He won't be ready for game one? Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's like, what are you doing, San Diego? Yeah, this. I mean, if this came from New England, it would still be a little bit ridiculous, but at least people would say, well, you know, they know what they're doing. And this is a franchise in doubt. Like, right. where yeah. are they going to be in a year? And it's like, talk about a fuck you to the fans. Yep. Like, hey, come out to these games. We can't promise that we're going to be here next year or beyond, and we're not going to sign the third They're one of the pick. teams that filed the move, right? There were three teams that filed yeah, the move. Yeah, they definitely, I think, thought they were going to be in L.A. this year. Right. So, who knows? There's reports that the Browns might be trading uh, their first draft their first round pick uh, Mingo to New England oh really yeah which I don't know where that came from yeah Arcavius Mingo he went to LSU he was the sixth overall pick why in the draft uh, it says here he hasn't lived up to expectations yeah but who has there uh, Cleveland's not happy with them when they declined to pick up his fifth year option on his rookie deal um, on Thursday we got crystal clear proof oh the Browns have oh this is official the Browns have traded him to New England. New England has confirmed. So I don't know if it was in the time that I clicked the article wow, or what, but it went from he may be traded to he has been traded. Uh, New England confirmed the trade. Uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer beat writer Mary Kay Cabot reported the Patriots gave the Browns a 2017 fifth-round pick. That's ridiculous. Damn it. I want him for a 2017. 17th fifth round pick. Yeah, why not? Why not? Why if you're the Bills? If you're Jesus, the Saints, why aren't you any team? Right. You're, especially, I mean. You, why is it always the Patriots that are getting guys like this? Seems like the, I mean, the Patriots, if you're going to argue that a team is going to finish well at the end of the year, it's the Patriots. So that pick, not only is going to be a fifth round, it's going to be a bad fifth rounder probably. So why not trade with someone like the Bills for that same pick? Ian Rappaport tweeted that Mingo wasn't a fit for the new Hugh Jackson regime. In three years with the Browns, he played in 46 out of 48 games, but had just 16 starts. 11 of them came in 2014. He's credited with only seven sacks, one interception, one fumble recovery, 11 pass breakups. Look, he hasn't been good. Yeah. But yeah. I think if you're the Patriots, the you shot. will absolutely take a shot. And if you're the Browns, a Browns fan, you got to be wondering why. Yeah, if you're He's Browns under fan, cro- contract, let's just see. Maybe Couldn't you get one of those... Deals where there, you trade your underachiever for their underachiever, something like that. Like why? Why a fifth round nothing pick? That's 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 bizarre. What a nightmare! The league wants to fight with these guys who got linked up with that Al Jazeera report or whatever. So it's Julius Peppers, Clay Matthews, and James Harrison. Oh yeah, I heard Harrison was in a meeting for like forty minutes. Yeah, today. so that's turning into a fight. Bruce Arians doesn't think it's fair that bad coaches benefit from video. Did what? you hear this story? No. Oh, this is really strange. Let me read you some quotes. All right. The NFL has been adding in-game technology for its coaches slowly, from speakers in the quarterbacks and linebackers' helmets to tablets on the sidelines. Oh, okay. I get it. Uh, it makes sense that the next stop will be allowing them to view video in-game. It's okay. not like the league doesn't have technology for it, right? Right. They've always been showing like the sna- You always see like Peyton Manning looking, looking over the, the snapshots right. and stuff. Yeah. Well, Bruce Arians says it helps bad coaches. Uh, defensively, you spend a lot of hours and time on blitz, and a guy can sit there, watch it on tape, show it to his guys, 
and fix it in the first quarter. That's not what it's all about. Now, apparently, Arians isn't the only one who thinks so. Uh, the Riverboat Ron says, I'm against it. As coaches, we work Monday through Sunday preparing for Sunday's game. I work, I game plan, I put all my thoughts together, I'm attacking you, I'm beating you, and then all of a sudden you get a tablet and you get to watch the play, rewind the play, and see what happens on the play, and you can say, oh my gosh, that's what they're doing to us. Now so, you make an adjustment and change what you're doing and have success, I don't think it's right. So they think the reason they're better coaches than these other coaches that they're calling out or whatever is because they can recognize it quicker or... They can recognize it without the video. Without the, the video. bad coaches. Yeah, I, I guess. Everyone's got access to the same information, so I'm okay with it. Rivera uh, used an example from last year's Pro Bowl in which Drew Brees examined a play on video, saw an adjustment to be made, and threw a touchdown to Antonio Brown the next time they ran it. I, 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 I mean, hey, if it had worked in the Pro Bowl. Well, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what doesn't work in the Pro Bowl? Yeah, if Drew Brees was able to pick out a DB in a Pro Bowl... You better scrap it. Yeah, Drew Brees throwing to maybe the best receiver in the league <laughs> with in the, the Bowl. with the guy not trying, yeah. no, no blitzing, <laughs> right? Nobody's allowed to touch him. Well, it's never ending. You watching Hard Knocks at all? I haven't. It no, stinks. I don't. Stinks. Dwayne and Dwayne and Egg. It's just a boring, boring team. I forgot already who it was. It's the Rams. Rams. There was a right. funny part in the first episode where they show a team meeting when they're moving into the dorms. Okay. And they show Jeff Fisher kind of saying, like, you cannot have any girl visitors in the dorms. Okay. So then, like, 10 minutes pass in the show, and um, Jeff Fisher's with the player in his office. And he's like, what happened, man? And the guy's like, oh, man, you know, she was just, she wasn't about to stay over. She was just dropping some stuff off. And then the half an hour before curfew, and they did check early, so I got caught. And Jeff Fisher's like, yeah, you're caught. Wow. <laughs> Well, so and he told the team that that was seven and nine bullshit, and he doesn't want any seven and nine bullshit. Okay, but they look very much to me like a team full of seven and nine bullshit. Are they really trying to push the? Uh, I always mess up who they drafted Goff or Wentz. Uh, they have Goff. Goff, right? Yeah. They really trying to push that? Like Goff's on the show. Yeah. yeah. Chris Wenke is the quarterback coach. Okay. And they're always showing Chris Wenke yelling at Jared Goff for some reason. <laughs> okay. And they make goof on him because he didn't know where the sun set and rose. No. Okay. So they had to teach him that. Okay. But just no characters this year. No. It's, you know, it's three episodes in and I just don't feel like I know anyone or care about anyone enough. Gotcha. It's just not the best year. Yeah. All right. Last thing. Jimmy Vesey. He has a team. It's not the Sabres. Jimmy Vesey, you're dead to me. Yeah, I don't know what to say about this, really. He's going to a, a team that perpetually makes the playoffs, so good for him from that respect. But they're a team that's got to be considered on the decline, right? I mean, all their money's spent in an all-world goalie, which is fine, but, I mean, he's got to be in his mid He better be all-world, all world. Yeah, he too. better be all-world. Yeah. Um, they do have some talent at forward. I don't, I don't know where he... Hey, you know, he gets a minimum amount of money. And if he wants to spend that money in New York City instead of Buffalo, that's his business. Right. Uh, where he wants to play is his business. I don't care. But you know what? This is why I put this on here to say this. We're not going to talk about this guy again. He's not good enough. No, he will be hated. He's going to get booed here. Nobody care. Nobody's going to care. He's going to go to New York. He's going to play on their second or third line. Yep. He's going to score somewhere between 10 on a bad year and 25 goals if everything goes great. 
first year, and you're just not going to think about him. No. You know, the next time you might think about him is if he's a significant run on a Rangers team that makes a playoff run next spring. The biggest but thing. But he's not as good as this free agent fiasco made him out to be. No, um, he kind of had a spot here on the Sabres potentially on a top two line. But, I mean, if that happened, I think that looked more promising when the idea of. It was a young of- guy fitting in with a young team. Right. And we would have been overvaluing him, too. And I think that's why I would have been less surprised if he went up to Toronto because that's a younger team kind of on the same trajectory as the Sabres, maybe a year or two behind. Um, Boston would have made sense from the hometown angle, but they, they aren't a good, they're the worst team I think that people were talking to. I heard Chicago was really mad, really mad. I mean, they sent their coaches there when they weren't supposed to. So, <laughs> But whatever. You know who is happiest is the New York Islanders because we know that Jimmy Vesey sucks against rivals. Oh. He was two eleven and two all time against Yale at Harvard. So oh, really? biggest biggest winners are uh, are New York Islanders. Should be beating the Rangers every every time now. And I think anything if anything comes to this, the next CBA, this will not happen. Yeah, I think that's the end of that loophole. Yep, that's going to be close. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with SL Price. All right, our next guest is from Stanford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of North Carolina. He is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where he has won just about every award and been in the Best American Sports Writing Series more than just about anyone. He also has a book coming out soon that we've been dying and dying and dying to read about Elkhope of Pennsylvania and football there, and he's making his eighth appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to SL Price. Great to be here. Thank you for having me yet again. How you doing, Mr. Price? How was Brazil? Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was absolutely fascinating as you would expect. I mean, it was, uh, this is a country that was under great duress, is, remains under great duress. The impeachment proceedings begin today. So politically, it was, it is at a, in chaos. Uh, economically, it's in free fall, and um, you know it's the the games had its difficulties. Uh, the Olympics were filled with empty seats, and there were some inefficiencies in organization, to say the least. But they pulled it off, and uh, I uh, I think it was kind of a heroic effort, in spite of all these problems, that they actually were able to get it done and and do so with some real class and grace. How many days were you there? Uh, I think it was twenty two, twenty three, maybe. And what can you kind of like give us a like kind of a idea of what the average day was like? Well, it depended because because the first week was devoted almost wholly to Katie Ledecky and swimming. Okay. Um, I I spent a lot of time the first week there and and wrote a piece for the magazine on that and did some web stuff as well um, for. Uh, for her races, um, and so I, I spent a lot of time at swimming. And then the second week, uh, I was researching this Russian wrestler who's uh, Abdul Rashid Sadalayev, who's as dominant and great a figure in his sport as as Ledecky or or um, Simone Biles is in theirs. But but almost nobody knows about him. And uh, so I so that was a fun thing to research. And then obviously Ryan Lochte sort of blew up the Olympics <laughs> right. in the second week and. 
how to pay attention to that and also the IOC and how they were handling their various responsibilities with Pat Hickey, the naked IOC member, and uh, arrested for corruption and ticket scalping schemes done in, in Rio and was taken to a maximum security prison. So there was all kinds of strange, uh, bizarre happenings, uh, which, you know, you can always expect with the Olympics, but you just never know what they are. I, I, I spoke to a uh, one of the great sports journalists, Malcolm Moran, uh, who's now heading Indiana's sports journalism program, uh, University of Indiana, and he, he brought down a couple students, and he said basically that, that he told them uh, covering the Olympics is like uh, taking a final every day uh, but you don't know where it is, and you don't know what it's going to be on, and you don't know what you're going to be tested on. And so, I, I, that, for those students, that's that was a good description. But it's a pretty good description for for every journalist who's down there. It's a, it's a wild ride, and you're exhausted and not sleeping very much, and and uh, eating whenever you can, and and you sort of go where the sco- story takes you, and you're bouncing around in buses and in uh, at weird venues and at weird hours, and um, you're really in this this strange bubble and it, it, there, there's almost nothing like it i mean the only thing that comes close is the world cup uh, but that's a little more specific because you're obviously covering one sport um th- this thing you're if you're lucky you get to range around and do a bunch of different stuff and uh, different things and i i had sort of the best of both worlds i got to cover kayla decky and sort of her her dominance in the pool as an american star and that you know that took up a week and then the rest of the time i got to range around a little bit now, is it a case where you, when you left for the day, you kind of had to be gone for the day? I kind of heard this that, like, was it hard, where you were staying? Was was it so far away that once you kind of made the commitment to leave your room, you're kind of gone for the day? Oh yeah, I mean, you're, look, everybody you know has a complaint about their hotel, but in the end, you know, if it has a good shower and a decent bed, that's great <laughs> because you're really you're you're really never there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're you're either at the press center. Or, or you're at the press center for a short amount of time, and then you're sprung off to some event site. I mean, some of the uh, many of the events were clustered in in one area in Olympic Park, but obviously the track and field were, was somewhere else, and I never even made it out to the track and field. And um, uh, so there were guys who had far more difficult treks than I did in terms of getting on a bus and going across the city to um, to that or down to uh, Copacabana and had to deal with the bus. Uh, you know, bus inefficiencies, or or or, or just just strange bus schedules and closings of stadiums at three in the morning, and you know there were stories about that. But but those stories happen uh, at almost every Olympics, and I and I'll I'll you know everybody who it's easy for Americans to point at Rio as is you know as a debacle or inefficient or, or whatever. But you know Atlanta, I was in Atlanta in '96, and the bus system there was was a mess, and it was over commercialized, and people had plenty of on the ground complaints about Atlanta as well. So it's it's um the Olympics always has its set of problems. And by the way, I'm not saying that Rio didn't have its problems nor um am I saying that I've never seen a run up like I did to these Olympics in terms of just the disastrously bad news heading into Olympics. And I covered Athens and I've covered a lot of covered that was my 10th games. And um you know, this was as bad as it got going into it. Um so so yeah, they they were it was a valid uh, set of stories to deal with and complaints and worries, but all in all, um, it, you know, it, it, Zika never was a problem. Uh, I saw maybe three mosquitoes the whole time I was there. Um, Grant Wall, our soccer writer, may have seen more because he he was out at soccer. They're outside and 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 closer to 
right. ground zero for mosquito-borne illnesses. So um, I don't want to speak for him, but but overall, um, you know, some of the things that that we were worried about didn't come to pass, and of course, some things that we had no expectation of coming to pass came to pass. So, uh, and that's as it should be. That's news. That's, well, that's, as, that's what you're looking for. As a guy who's covered ten of these, and you know, I, I watched like many people the. Uh, the real sports kind of um, hour-long thing that they had about, yeah, you know, about exposing what happens to these cities, and and you talk about the disorganization. Is it? Are we to the point where doesn't it make sense to just pick out three or four spots as like rotating Olympic venues, like places that make sure. sense that can handle Forget it? Forget three or four. I, I would I would argue have the Winter Games in Switzerland, and uh, and. Have the summer games in Greece always. Like, right. like to me, you know, build an Olympic complex in Greece. Heck, go back to Olympia if you can. And and uh, you know what could be more Olympic than that? And uh, so yeah, I'm 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 with you. And again, obviously that <laughs> Greece is not in any kind of shape financially at this point to finance such a thing. So far be it for me to foist that upon a country that can't handle it at this point. But. Sure. If it if it you know if they were per- permanently summer games in L.A. or you know, uh, you know Paris, um, you know some place that can handle and had the infrastructure, it would certainly make a lot more sense. Of course, it's not going to reap the IOC nearly as much money. So let's let's face it. That's the reason that this bidding process is is always there. You, you essentially you have a roving process internationally that you know american cities deal with intermittently which is that you know someone wants to build a new stadium and they pit you know oh well we might move to you know oklahoma city or or you know las vegas and and therefore you better build us a city or we're moving our team and 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 even better you know if we have two or three candidates who are vying to to take our team and so you know that sort of civic blackmail is not only an olympic uh, exercise and event. It's also uh, a you know any sports owner uh, is looking for that kind of leverage to make more money and to have more of a responsibility of funding a stadium off his own financial plate. And so I I I, I have a hard time believing that that's ever going to happen. Journalists love the idea. I love the idea. It makes perfect sense. You don't you're not making a city or a country put up with it. But but there you know I see is. Hey, you know they they want us, so uh, we'll let them bid against each other. And of course, in recent years, we found that a lot of times the populace doesn't want them. Like Boston, and Boston is, yeah, is yeah. Exhi- Exhibit A. Yeah. So I mean, when it's put up for a referendum, you know, governments love it. Um, you know, like Vladimir Putin's Russia and China as well, and any any entity that's looking to stoke popular support for itself, especially one that can control the populace, uh, loves the idea of an Olympics. It may, it's, a, it's a nice thing. It's great photo op. But, you know, you put it to a vote of the people, um, I think that it's an entirely different um, uh, equation. And I would argue that uh, the IOC should bow to pressure and a referendum should be Included in every single bit, right? And and you know that that would make it a, 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 at least <laughs> fair to the people that they had to vote on it at, at some point, um, and they and the, their will has to be respected. The problem is the problem with that is is that 
unlike Rio, Beijing, for example, is a highly controllable environment, and the IOC loves highly controllable environments, the bubble that is created by the Olympics so that every, they can feast on wonderful finger food and the transportation's perfect and there are no glitches and there are no protests. And the problem is, is that democracy is messy, uh, protests are messy, the Olympics doesn't, doesn't like messy, and so, um, and of course, those uh, authoritarian or totalitarian regimes that are so primed and happy to host these things for obviously selfish reasons, the last thing they want to do is have a referendum, nor would they ever allow popular voice in their decision-making uh, in anything, much less whether or not they want to host the Olympic Games. So, so it's a very, very strange, tough situation, but if you follow the money and follow self-interest, uh, it, it's almost impossible to see a, a situation where the IOC does indeed follow common sense and and have the Olympics in in permanent places. Um, it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to their self interest and it certainly doesn't uh, give them as much money as they'd like. Right. You know, it's just that I just have trouble you know, uh, Jeff and Catherine Perlman are, are good friends of the podcast and Catherine wrote a piece on Jeff's blog about why she boycotted uh, the Olympics, which is perfectly within her rights. But Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem that I have in, in feeling bad for these countries and the people in the countries is the bill of goods that you buy from the IOC is very is very transparent at this point. I mean, there's examples all around the world of why it's a bad idea. And if your government gets in bed with that idea and ultimately, like you says, essentially does everything they can to bribe them into coming there if that's the appropriate word i'm not sure but i i just that's probably appropriate i yeah. just can't i i have trouble then when they're being played feeling all that bad and i understand you know geez the poor people who got yanked out of their house and it got knocked down like that's a whole well again keep in mind keep in mind thing, if, if 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 boston had had said yes on the referendum and they got an olympics and everybody complained I think your point of view is correct. It's like I have a hard time feeling bad for you, but the point is, is what a lot of people say is they never go to quote unquote the people. They mm-hmm. the governments are the ones who want them, and whether they're popularly elected or not, um, you know, they're not going to a referendum to ask you know whether the people actually really do want them. Uh, and so, um, what I'm saying is, is, is simply, you know, if you had put it to a vote in 2000. Nine, which is when Rio um, wanted to host the games. I don't really know if there were polls at that time that 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 said there was this great support for Rio. I certainly don't think there was any kind of referendum. So the point is, is that is that, um, but you, you know, so you can argue that you know Rio wanted the games, and but but the entire world sort of their their entire bottom dropped out on them right. economically, socially, and politically, and, and they were left sort of holding the bag at a, at a very tough time. Um, but I'm just saying that you have to, you, you can't, you can't, you have to separate the will of governments and the will of the people, whether people want it, you know, and that's why the Boston thing was so surprising, uh, because Boston city government seemed to want it, uh, everybody seemed to think it was a great idea, and then they put up a referendum, and that was the end of that. And and so, it, you know, it, it, it's um, it's I I feel absolutely in league with you know people who 
if a country didn't want it, I have no idea if Russia wanted the Olympics or China wanted the Olympics. I know their governments did, but if the people were against it, and I'm not sure they were, but I, I don't know, um, I would have a hard time celebrating those Olympics um, if, if it was found that, you know, 70% of the populace were saying, you know, we want this money spent on infrastructure for us or food programs or education as opposed to a, a three-week sporting event. You just sort of poetically said something about, like, the will of the people versus the will of the government. You, can you repeat that? You said that so beautifully. It just I, be- I, I, I have no idea what I said. Well, I mean, basically I'm saying there's a difference between the will of the people and the will of, of governments. Right. And, and, and essentially – go ahead. Sorry. And I scream that every time someone takes something away from North Carolina. <laughs> you know, it, it, so it's like it, – it, it's a different – I guess a different issue, but I mean – you know, every time I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy, and they they canceled on North Carolina this year. The NBA has taken their All Star game from them this year, and you know, I feel for the people of North Carolina. I guess so. Maybe I should feel for the people of Brazil. Maybe I'm a hypocrite because those people in North Carolina they didn't vote on that law that's causing all this. It was put in right. special session in the middle of the night. Whatever. We don't have to get into all that. My point is, we don't. We don't give the people of North Carolina those that break. The way you put it was so perfect. So maybe, maybe you. No, it's a very good. It's it. actually a very uh, astute analysis. I mean, essentially, you know, you're talking about um, a small cadre versus the the will of the people, and the fact that people of North Carolina are now stained with that uh, reputation, and and obviously the loss of you know obviously some incredible events performances performers visitors um and you know i guess the, the hope is that uh if they feel really strongly about the politicians who put that in right. uh they will then vote them out you know and 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 there'll be a change um but it, it is true that for the moment um unfortunately if if they're against those laws they are still uh sort of swarm together under that umbrella of reputation and and uh, are forced to be considered quote unquote you know the North Carolina point of view at this point in time. Well, let's talk about some of the cool stuff that happened because we could go on about this for a while. You did spend a week covering Ledecky who wowed me. I mean, I, when I think back to this Olympics, one of the first things I'm going to think of is her last race and her finishing and no other swimmers kind of like being in my giant TV. They were some somewhere on the on the left edge still trying to creep their way even into the picture. Um, you've covered 10 Olympics. I'm sure you've seen some amazing things. Where does what you see from Katie Ledecky kind of rank up and stack up? And what was it like to watch it in person? Well, again, in terms of personal dominance over an event at such a young age, um, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I mean, she's about as it's as remarkable performance as we've seen. And and Biles was was the same. I I didn't cover it, but it's the same type of thing. It's just right. she was simply uh, miles ahead, literally of the competition. She's simply that much better. And um, you know, it's it it is it's breathtaking to watch because it's you know it is your you know if you want to take it in an idealistic fashion, and that we all want to, whether we're, you know, uh, as cynical as we are taught to be, we all would like it to um, serve as an example of what the human body is 
continuous continues to be capable of and 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 stretch the boundaries of capability of so it's you know it's it's wonderful to watch i will tell you that you know in one sense though that dominance is kind of dull not not on katie ledecky you know we love a race we love and 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 to tell you the truth the most excitement i saw from her was in her closest races you know she 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 the uncertainty of the 200 um you know really made it a, a far more emotional race to watch and her performance near the end where she just held on she was she was close to being caught and and right. and, and held on to win the gold and that and even more her absolute unfakeable joy in being on a relay being on a team um and and being part of that sort of dominance um it was far more electric because she so much clearly enjoyed it i i i've spent a lot of time with the family i did a long piece on her prior to the olympics and i um you know i can't i I can't get over how here's this person who's so dominant in an individual and and what is essentially an extremely lonely um occupation who clearly far more enjoys the social element of being part of a team and, and and a team race um, than she does the individual one. Don't get me wrong; she loves sort of setting a goal for herself and 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 somehow meeting it and training for it. And she she couldn't have done that unless she really embraced and I would say loves the lonely aspect of training and training at a high level. So that when I mean she would race in practice against the men and always disappointed if she wasn't beating them i mean that's just kind of the mindset but i'm saying so so there was this incredibly professional um side of her and hungry shark-like side of her when it came to 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 racing individually it's still there when she races um as a team but that is where you saw the real fun and the joy of the sport that you know the ernie Banks side and really the part where she looked most like a kid uh, was when she was racing with her teammates, and you know, at the end of her 800, which which signified the end of her um, Olympics, uh, Katie came into the mix zone, and we're all standing there. And you know, this is someone who's always been very cheery and very self-contained. And then she stood there, and and someone asked her about um, her coach, and she just lost it and was crying, and and she apologized and tried to stop and. You could see this sort of sheer relief after three years, because she had set these goals in, in, in Barcelona in 2013, of, of gunning towards these goals and working hand-in-glove with Bruce Gemmel, who, who, who really helped push her beyond herself. Um, and, you know, she was coming to the end of really a chapter. She, she took a year off after high school, so she was living at home. She's now going to go off to Stanford. And she was spending weeks and months with, other people who knew exactly what she was going through, uh, other swimmers, other competitors, and just clearly enjoyed so much spending time uh, with Simone Manuel, her roommate. Um, and, and so she lost it, and she kept losing it throughout the, throughout the night at her press conference. And I spoke mm-hmm. to her again after by herself, and, and she again was crying. And this is, again, remarkable to see from her, but she couldn't help it, and you could see her coming to the end of something. And it was the end of a real chapter of greatness, um, but also a chapter of childhood, and she's going off to Stanford. She's going to have a great career there for however long she wants. And um, but she's a very smart girl. She knew she had come to the end of something, and and it was a privilege 
honestly, uh, to be able to see that and see her reveal herself. Well, she's not going to be 20 until March. She's already got five gold medals. She's won nine world championships. She's one of the most famous athletes in the United States of America right now. You mentioned she's going to Stanford. Can she monetize this? or? Well, she can if she wants. I okay. mean, the point is is that she's an amateur right now. She, right. she can't have an agent. She can't have a publicist. She can't do endorsements as long as she wants to swim in college. And that's sort of the interesting thing. I, first of all, her family doesn't need her to monetize it. Okay. Father's a lawyer, they're a very well-off family. They live here half a mile from me in the D.C. area. And um, so she doesn't need it. Uh, she's a very intellectually curious uh person especially about politics and american affairs cultural affairs so she's interested she and she loves the idea of being on a team like if she becomes professional she suddenly starts training by herself again and so i certainly believe she's going to stay at stanford for one at least one i wouldn't be surprised at all two and to tell you the truth everything that i've just said to you I, i wouldn't be surprised if she stays at stanford for four years now on the other hand you know she could stand to make anywhere from 10 to who knows 30 million dollars um, turning professional with sponsorships and so on and so forth, and that's tough to um, walk away from, obviously. But her family does not need that money. I think the most interesting X factor is her coach, Bruce Gemmel. She's no longer working with him because she's going to Stanford and, and working with the coaching staff there. But, you know, if she finds after a year or two that she's not progressing enough or as much as she'd like to going toward the next Olympics, um, I could see her staying at Stanford, turning professional, then then going to classes at Stanford, not swimming for Stanford, but training there, and perhaps Gemmel comes out and, and works with her uh, with a group out there. Uh, I think that's more of an X factor about whether she turns professional than strictly the money situation. Do you think she has it in her sights to try to chase down Phelps? Like, does she just not swim in enough events maybe for that to be realistic? Or, I mean, she's certainly young enough to be in what? three more Olympics at least, right? Um, do you yeah, think that's a goal she is. Hers, I, 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 again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, she loves an idea of a challenge. There's no question. She loves the idea of setting goals. I don't think she's at all sitting around saying, I want to swim three more Olympics and, um, you know, run after Michael Phelps. I, I, I don't think she's there yet. It's sort of like, you know, Serena with Steffi Graf. It, you know, I don't think... You know, she started off saying, "I want to be the greatest of all time," and and run down Steffi Graf at you know uh, and her twenty two majors. Um, it's once you get to close, once you get close to it, you kind of use that as motivation for the next stage. Right. I, I I do think she, uh, you know, is absolutely intrigued and fascinated and 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 intends to swim in the next Olympics in Tokyo. Um, uh, but she's a very interested and interesting, uh, interesting mind, and she's interested in the world. Um, you know, I, I certainly expect to see her in the next Olympics. Um, and you know, the Janet Evans was telling me she certainly expects to see her in the 2024 games because she she's that dominant. And you know, she could expand her repertoire by being an IM. Uh, uh, you, you know, she could. You know, there's talk about butterfly. You know, she may do all those things. On the other hand, um, you know, I could see her do Tokyo and uh, see how well she does there and, and walk away. I could see that happening as well. She's in a nice position. I mean, she can, she could, uh, she could never get in the pool again and say she won five Olympic gold medals and is a nine-time world champion. She's not even 20 yet. Uh, you got to admire that. 
Sir? And she and she threw throughout the first pitch at the Nats game last night, and apparently it was it was a strike. So she's 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 multi talented. And and by the way, she'd be, she'd get into Stanford if she wasn't swimming. I would I would bet she's a very smart girl. So smart girl, like I said, she's I think of Phelps as a swimmer first and foremost, and I think of Katie Ledecky as someone who is an achiever who swims. Did you get to see Phelps at all? I did. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, yeah, it's. Uh, He's astounding, you know. I mean, yeah. it's just it's just incredible to watch what he does, um, and to see that motivation. I, I, you know, he's had an incredible arc. I will tell you, I, I in Arizona, I, I went to see, I was working on this Ledecky piece in April, and I went to Mesa, Arizona, and 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 I had not really spoken to Phelps since 2008, uh, when I first, you know, came upon him in a mix zone and sort of took his measure a little bit, and and. I will tell you that when I and then I did speak to him one on one in 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 Mesa about Katie and just some things, and I, I I can't tell you how struck I was by the difference in him as as a guy. I mean he was, uh, I this is a hard time in American life. There are a lot of reasons to gripe and say that things are going to hell. Um, I I literally walked away from the conversation saying, "Wow, Michael Phelps has gotten better. I mean he's just a better guy, more at peace with himself, and you know we all hope that." Of, of human beings, but of course, someone who's laden with, with money and fame, and and obviously he's had his difficulties, DUIs, the whole thing. Uh, but I was really struck by by, just the the, the basic progress that he's he's shown. Uh, I was really impressed by him. So I, I hope it holds, and I hope he finds a you know continues to find a measure of peace, at least the sense of it that I got when I spoke to him then. Yeah, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but he was on uh, Joe Buck's uh, interview show on DirecTV, and I thought Joe did a really good job of kind of painting that story that you just kind of talked about. And then watching him in the Olympics, you just he felt more. It was more fun to watch him just because there was almost a sadness to it. Maybe last time a little bit, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you could kind of feel that, and this time it just felt so exciting every time he jumped in and. I mean, the guy, man, he just never loses either. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, I mean, well the other thing about this is, look, I, I mean, I always am very cautious of these wonderful story arcs, you know, right. the comeback, mm-hmm. the redemption. You know, I, I actually am, am quite suspicious of it, um, and, I, and, and, and especially because it's so easy and convenient to fit these athletes into certain story arcs. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, I can't argue with the sense I got from him. It's, it's not something that I've, I've gotten often. And I've certainly dealt with athletes and people who, you know, have said, yep, I've changed. Everything's better now. My life is great. And then, of course, three months later, they blow up again. So I've, I've seen that happen, and it's taught me to be wary. I, I, I just will say that I, I, it's rare that I've been struck the way I was with, with Phelps in the spring uh, at at the difference in him, he had gone from being from an extremely callow and self interested guy to just you know it just seemed like he'd grown up a, quite a bit and and that was uh, I, I, it's hard for me to go against my instinct on that I'm I'm still wary because you know people do disappoint all of us uh, but I, I I've rarely had that feeling. Is there a story, a person, a thing that you're kind of pissed off right now because it's going to just end up as a note in your notebook that you're never going to quite get to that 
you can use this platform as a way to at least share it a little bit? You mean from Rio? Yeah. Uh, I I almost would have uh, because it was a very not desperate, but it was down to the wire situation, which was this Russian wrestler I ended up writing about. Uh, Sadulayev, and and what I'm saying is, is that it, you know the story almost didn't come off. I kept okay. trying to get him. I wanted to write it before the games. I wanted to write it before he swam. Couldn't get access. Couldn't you know get any time with him or any Russians to even talk about him uh, until finally the day he wrestled, which was Saturday, the day before closing ceremony. So it, it was sort of a story that I was. Anytime someone's called the Russian tank. <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of irresistible. You sort of want to think, and 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 knowing that he was as dominant as Ledecky and Biles, but nobody knew about him. Really, and I m't mean nobody, meaning in the West, um, really was paying attention to him because it's wrestling, because he's Russian, for many reasons. Um, so I was just fascinated by everything about him, um, and was able at the last second to at least cobble together a piece that ran, you know, right at the end, you know, ran Sunday morning. Um, uh, um, and finally got in. So, so no, I, I felt like I emptied the notebook uh, pretty well. And he looks he looks a lot like uh, Ovechkin too. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good call. I hadn't really thought about that. And and you know, it's funny you say that, um, but I um, covered Ovechkin when he was playing um, for Russia in. I want to say Turin. I uh, can't remember at this point, but I think it was I think it was Turin in 06. Is that right? Is that when you scored um, the big goal against Canada and they won one nothing in that Olympics? Yeah, but he was yeah he was in the penalty box when they won, mm-hmm. and uh, that's exactly right. And he was you know and I'll never forget Ovechkin was in the penalty box when the final horn blew and the Russians all got together and were celebrating and he was still in the box. And he was banging on the glass, essentially saying, let me out, I want to come out and celebrate. It's <laughs> one of my favorite Olympic visions I've ever seen. It was, it was like, I just want to, I want to have fun with you guys at this, this moment, and for the moment I'm in jail. You've got to let me out. <laughs> and, uh, so I'll never forget that. I wonder where that ranks in his, in his all-time goals. Because that's so, I early, so think... early in his career. I bet it's high. Because I know how much, Olymp- international hockey means maybe more to Alexander Ovechkin than anyone in the world. I mean, he... He's fired up. He gets fired up about about playing for Russia, and that I mean that's probably the biggest goal he scored in the Russian uniform. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, no, I, I I don't know. I've never spoken to him about it. Although someone told me that. So did they? I can't remember. What did they win in those the Olympics? Did they win gold? So they beat they beat Canada to nothing, and then they but then they lost. They right? blew it to Finland. Yep, and they didn't even right. And, then, right. they lost so, the, and so, then they lost the bronze medal game too to checks, but they had checked right. out. So, you know, so, 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 right. So, and I believe uh, I was told that at one point because Ledecky, uh, Ledecky is um, was a big hockey fan, and her and her uncle uh, was part owner of the Caps and and Wizards for a while. Now he's the yeah. uh, owner of of the Islanders. Um, and at one point uh, after the last Olympics, Katie went into the um, went into the locker room. Of the caps, and uh, a story goes that Ovechkin, she had her gold medal, and Ovechkin saw it and said, and wanted to see it and hold it, and he's like, I really want one of these. So that was a cool moment, also. <laughs> and by the way, I just want to say one other thing. Yeah. Um, 
probably the best moment of the Olympic. The most Olympic moment I saw was actually when we had Phelps, Ledecky, and Biles come up to the SI office to shoot the cover for the issue in the middle of the games. At one point, and it's on film. You can you, you, they, they they've got it online. They've, they've they've thrown it up there. But it was really astounding because at one point it was all very posed, and you know everybody's getting together, and it's it's a very nice moment. But it's not something usually given to spontaneous. You were organizing three different athletes um, at the same time. Everybody had their own schedules. You know, it was pretty rushed. Uh, but there was one moment where Phelps is standing next to Katie Ledecky, and 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 she's trying to arrange her her five medals on her on her chest and um she's struggling with it and phelps turns and he's got his across his test, chest and he and then he starts fixing her medals for her and weaving them in this actually really beautiful pattern of the ribbons and the medals and you know he's clearly an expert at this for obvious reasons and he says yeah i'm kind of used to it and then he says don't worry you'll get used to it too and it was just this quiet handoff very much felt like an anointing and it was completely obviously unscripted and um just between the two of them but of course uh you know it was captured on film but it was he wasn't doing it for any reason and he really was just helping her out one champion to another dealing with this massive metal on their chest and this hardware that only they really would ever have that experience so it it was pretty amazing makes me feel like a proud american that story all right uh Mr. Price is on Twitter. He's at by SL Price there. You can find him. Um, large part thanks to me, even though he doesn't like to admit that. Uh, you no. can also find his work on SI.com, of course. And if you search uh, very easily, if you search SL Price SI, the very first story you'll find is the story that we alluded to just a second ago about the uh, Ovechkin lookalike wrestler um, from Russia. So you can find that there. And now that the Olympics is over, you know what that means, right? It's Al Quippa book time. Next month, October 4th, it's coming out. Playing Through the Whistle is the name of it. I can't wait. It's so, on Amazon. You can pre-order it now. But we're going to say goodbye, and then you're going to hold on a second, and then you're going to tell me how I can get a copy before then, right? Sure. Okay. All right. In that case, then... Uh, we will give a very kind ending. Thank you so much for all the time. The stories, again, it's by SL Price on Twitter, SI.com. Sports Illustrated comes in the mailbox every week. If you do it that way, you should, but it looks beautiful on the iPad as well. Anything else you want to put out there, plug-wise? Nope, that's it. All right, until next time, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet, Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank SL Price for being on the podcast today. Uh, we talked about how, at the very end of the interview, about how his book on football in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania is going to be out. And I found out a few minutes after that that we're going to have 10 copies of said book. So, Yeah, it's, it's great. We're going to have copies. Yes, yeah, we're going to be giving some away. We're going to be giving them away. They are not going to be stacked up in this room for years. <laughs> All right, five on fantasy today. Don and I have a draft this weekend. It's a 12-team PPR so we thought in the interest of time, since we do have a lot to record today, 
we would do a round one 12 team PPR mock draft. Don is going to be the odds, and I will be the evens, and we will do the turn. All right. So, Don, you have the first pick. I think this is a no-brainer, but I, I think it's gotten a little bit closer where I'd be a little bit tempted to take the guy. You'll probably take it too, but I'll take Antonio Brown with the first pick. Uh, just a reception machine, uh, scores touch. I mean, the makes offense sense. moves through him. So it's a pick that makes sense. Uh, there's two guys I consider at the next spot, and I'm going to use something I always use when breaking a tie, <laughs> Okay, and that's uh, I'm going to pick the guy that doesn't play for Atlanta, so like, I'm going right. to pick Beckham. Yeah, I should, have, I should have thought that. Julio Jones is the guy I thought you could make the argument for at number one, only because it's just in a PPR league, he catches 105, 110 passes a year. So um, I'll take Julio Jones. Which makes a lot of sense at three. At four, I got my pick of running backs, but I like DeAndre Hopkins too much, so I'm going to pick him at four. Okay, um, I'm kind of following right along this cheat sheet, and, and I don't mean to do that necessarily, but uh, David Johnson's a guy I hope falls to me. Not in, in my league. I pick 11, so that'd be a miracle. But uh, it's, it's a small sample size. It's the only thing I think to be afraid of with him is a really small sample size for the guy you're going to pick first, or the first running back. But I'll take David Johnson. All right. I want a top receiver, and they're running out, so I'm going to take A.J. Green. Yeah, that's an interesting spot. I think that's about where I stop wanting receivers. Um, hmm. I'm going to go a little off the board on this, and I'll try to make up for it later, but I'll take Le'Veon Bell here. The cheat sheet I am looking at has him as the number four, but with his suspension going down to three games, that's only three games you have to try to fix. Maybe you can steal D'Angelo Williams a little bit later or even reach on D'Angelo Williams a little bit later. But as Matthew Barry always likes to say, it's a weekly game. And the guys, he's going to be one of the highest average points per week running backs in the league. So Yeah, I'll, I, don't have, I don't have any problem with Bell there. But I am kind of excited that you picked Bell only because that gives me a chance to pick Gurley. Okay. Um, and I think at one, two, three, four, eighth pick, I think that's great value. Sure. I maybe like it a little bit more in standard. I know he's not going to catch a ton of passes. Yeah. I still think he's going to catch more than he did last year. And he's just such a young, talented running back who in any, almost any other year of fantasy football would never last past two or three. You know, this is a new thing where we treat running backs yeah, it's bizarre. as mid to late round guys. So I think it's great value to get Gurley there. Yeah, absolutely. I I think with him, he's got a really high floor too. Like you throw out injury because anybody can get injured, but he where else are they going to go with the ball in that offense? So uh, it kind of got a hard knocks crush too. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Um, this is pick nine. Pick nine, I will go with one of the running backs I skipped. I'll take Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, again, it's a guy that we haven't seen anything from. I think he's going to play tomorrow night. Um, but behind that offensive line that made – I'm already blanking on his name. Who was the – Darren McFadden looking outstanding Marco Murray, a star. Yeah, so I'll take Ezekiel Elliott. And I will do a backflip to the podium with Adrian Peterson yeah. on my card. Adrian Peterson at 10. I picked him one last year, and I wasn't disappointed. Sure, he didn't finish number one in points, but he was like the only first round pick that didn't totally kill you, um, right? And sure. I and I think he's 
like that again. Another guy with a super high floor, He's and I guess super high floor. You hope Teddy Bridgewater takes a step forward, maybe. But you just hope this isn't the year. And he's not the guy that the over 30 curse affects. He's a freak. But he's just so different. He's yeah. just not built that way. And he had the year off. Uh, boy, All right, this is so where you it got gets one really more, tough. and then I got two to finish it off. We'll make the 13th pick together. This is where my real life pick is, too, and I hate it right here. Um, so that means the one, two, three, four, five potentially best running backs are off the board. And the Five and the receivers. five best receivers are off the board. So do you go Gronk here? I don't think so. You're just not that I've, guy. I've done it in the past, and you you chase your tail the rest of the draft. It is really it is so really tough. I, you really got to hit on somebody. I think if you're not going to take Gronk, you got to take a risk and take Lamar Miller then. I do like Lamar Miller. I don't think there's enough it's value Devontae in Des Bryant. Des Bryant makes me a little nervous. Um, yeah, I would take Lamar Miller. All right. Well, that's uh, will be interesting to see if you end up with Lamar Miller in our yeah, draft. draft. Yeah. I have the first pick. I'm sure I'll pick Brown. I don't think there's any reason to get cute. Right. All right. So that means I'm at the turn. Six backs are gone. Five receivers are gone. Gronk is still there. I could take two wide receivers, like do Allen Robinson and Des Bryant, because mm-hmm. I like Des Bryant a little bit more when I have Allen Robinson, too. Sure. Um, I don't have any problem with picking one running back. I don't mind Ingram, but it feels early, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm never picking Freeman. I don't trust him. I think he got all his points in four weeks. And yeah, you know what? If I feel like the I, fantasy I world him. was on the same page, and, and I know I've said that before. I never like a guy coming off a monster year. He really dwindled down the stretch, and I feel like the fantasy world was on board with that. And then he's had like two nice preseason games, and everyone's like, "No, he's good. <laughs> he's really good." I'm going to take Gronk first. All Too right. much value there. Too much value at at twelve. So now let's make pick thirteen together. We picked Gronk. Where do we go next? Do we get one of the wide receivers? I think if you hate Freeman, then I think there's no running back here. Okay, then I think we take either Allen Robinson or Des Bryant. Who do you like better? Hmm. It is a PPR league, and we're going to have two PPR monsters. I think with it being PPR, I think the answer is Robinson, right? I would think so. And I don't, I mean. There's less risk. There's less risk a little bit. I mean, I would even, he'd probably be a little bit of a reach, but Brandon Marshall is a super unsexy pick, but he's going to probably catch 100 balls too. Uh, especially now that Ryan Fitzpatrick's there. He's not good, but he will throw it. Um, but, yeah, Allen Robinson, I'd probably go with just the youth there. All right, we pick Robinson at 13. So this is our 12-pick PPR draft. We went Antonio Brown 1, Beckham 2, Jones 3. That combination of three has pretty much been unanimous. Those three Hop- guys are going 1, 2, and 3 yeah, in yeah. almost every draft. For sure. Four is Hopkins. That's maybe a little early for him, but he's a climber. I'm guessing it's him or Johnson there. Johnson goes five. Uh, A.J. Green goes six. Could have easily been a back there. Yeah, he's another guy that people aren't really excited about, but for no real reason. You right. know, he's just always good. And he's so solid, especially in a PPR. Yeah. Um, and then we had a run on backs. We had four, five backs in a row. Bell, Gurley, Elliott, Peterson, and... Miller, who I think is great value at 11. I think if you get to pick LeVar Miller at 11 on Saturday, yeah. you'd be excited about that. 
And then Gronk goes 12, and on the turn is Robinson. All right, that was fun. Yep. All right, we're going to take a break and come back and preview the Football Outsiders Almanac with Aaron Schatz. All right, our next guest is from Massachusetts and is a graduate of Brown. He is the creator of Football Outsiders and is the lead writer, editor, and statistician of the Football Outsiders Almanac. He's making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Aaron Schatz. What's going on, Adam? Or Aaron? Adam, I don't know why I called Hey, man. Adam. Yeah, well, you know, it's a... Name doesn't quite roll off the tongue, I guess. The, uh, That's odd. It's an alma mater you don't hear very much on uh, college football Saturdays, do you? You don't get a lot of brown, no. You don't get a lot of brown on Saturdays. You don't get a lot of brown during the game on Sundays. And we don't have a lot of brown writers. The, you know, the guests seem to come from, you know, 10 universities sometimes, it seems like. Playing the same fights on yeah. over and over again, you know? We, we have ESPN sportscasters instead. Right, well, you do have, uh, you got the main man, right? I mean, uh, what's his right, uh, Berman. Berman, yeah, so I mean. And uh, Doug Kazarian and uh, a couple others, I think. So how are you doing this year, Aaron? Uh, we talk every year at this time. I always look forward to it. For some reason, I was so excited this year. I called you Adam, no idea why. Um, but the Almanac is out. We talk every year when it comes out. And the first thing I'm always interested in is... Did anything unique happen this year in turning the Almanac into a thing that maybe hadn't occurred in years past? Well, I think the big thing for us with this year's Almanac was uh, the change in how we did game charting. So last year, um, you know, we had found that we've been charting games since 2005 with an army of volunteers, and... Uh, we found that that was a very difficult project to manage. So beginning last year, we contracted out to Sports Info Solutions, which formerly was known as Baseball Info Solutions and had charted a lot of baseball defensive stuff. Uh, And they did football charting for us. And it was the beginning of what we hope is going to be a long and fruitful relationship. Hopefully we'll give us some stats that we didn't have otherwise, turn things around a lot faster so we can use information during the season. Um, you know, you see, you find some of the information in the book. Uh, we're hoping to, we're working on uh, having some of that information be available to readers during the season. No promises yet until we know we've got it all programmed, but there could be big things coming to Football Outsiders Premium. So uh, that's the big news from this year's book is just the incorporation of Sports Info Solutions uh, to give us better and broader charting data. Was it hard to give that up in any way? Well, I mean, you know, there's business dealings that have to be done with it, but as far as the actual work, oh my God, it's no. so nice not to have to manage all the volunteers, let me tell you. Yeah. Because so, sometimes, you know... It gives me more time to write. It gives me more time to write. It gives me more time to do podcasts. I couldn't have done... You know, last year I started doing both the podcast with Sports Info Solutions that we call the Off the Charts podcast and a weekly fantasy football podcast with ESPN with Anita Marks, and I could not have done those things last year if I had been managing the game charting project 
in the way I had in years past. So it's allowed me to spend more of my time doing analysis, writing, podcasts, and that's what I would rather be doing. There was a really interesting stat, I thought, in the first page of the book. And, and actually, I was telling you, I was, I was reading, reading the Almanac in the hospital, and I was talking to a nurse about this. The Cleveland Browns, the poor Cleveland Browns, are are the the uh, the brunt of this sta- the brunt of this. They get the, uh, the they get the, the outhouse here right from the beginning. But almost the very first fact in the book is that you guys have simulated the season one million times, and in those one million times, the Browns end up winning the Super Bowl just about. Just under a thousand of them, I believe, or just over a thousand, something like that. And it puts yeah, seven hundred and seventy-two, right? Seven hundred seventy-two, and it puts them at about what thirteen hundred to one to win the Super Bowl—a true representation of what the odds of them being winning the Super Bowl if Vegas wasn't just trying to get everyone to play both sides or whatever the way Vegas does it. And it got me to thinking about those million simulations and. It really got me to thinking of the 700 times, just like what those years must be like. When, you know, what <laughs> I, I sat there for at least a half an hour thinking about, man, imagine if we hit one of those 700, what this season is going to be like. But it made me realize that I'd never, I don't think, really asked you about the simulations and, and kind of what goes into them. And um, it, made me want to, it made me want to know more about the simulations. Yeah, you know, a couple of years, I wrote an article. It was actually, you know, Baseball Prospectus simulates the season the same way. And they had done a thing when Houston was the worst team in baseball before all of their young guys finally developed, talking about the years in their simulation where Houston won the World Series and what how that happened. So two years ago, I actually did that with the Raiders, when the Raiders were the worst team and had the hardest projected schedule in the league. Two years ago, I wrote an article about it was they had only won the Super Bowl in like 300 of the simulations or something. So I went through and wrote about the most interesting simulations. Uh, the way it works is, so we have formulas that simulate uh, offense, defense, and special teams, DVOA. Right, the DVOA. And what it gives you is a mean projection, so sort of the average of the possibility. But each of the variables in that, you know, it's based on regression analysis. So each of the variables in between has sort of, you know, the mean coefficient, and then it has the, you know, 5% confidence value, 95% confidence value span of possible, you know, coefficients that sort of represent the possibilities of how good a team could be. So I use that to produce 1,000 different possible DVOA ratings for every team. And then each of those 1,000 sets of DVOA ratings gets run through 1,000 seasons because there's nothing that says that the best team will win the most games. There's just too much randomness in football from week to week, right? right? So imagine that we knew platonically, right? We knew the value of how good a team was, you know, as a sort of platonic ideal. Like we absolutely knew that the best team in the league was Seattle and they were worth 30 points more than average. We knew it, right? In, in, in the perfect world of, of the platonic ideal, we knew exactly what they were worth. But if you run them through a season, they are not going to win the most games every time. 
So what you end up with is, you know, if I go and look at these 770 seasons, I can tell you we would find years where Cleveland would be surprisingly good. Not as good as, as what we normally think of as a Super Bowl team. But you can find years where Cleveland would be an average team, where everything worked out for them. And they were an average team. And they got good luck in games. And Pittsburgh and Baltimore and Cincy had a little bit of a bad year. And then they get to the playoffs, and they go on a run. Yeah, they sneak in there, yeah. Right? Now, Mm -hmm. in real life, right? So imagine this as as a, you know, experiment. In real life, if that actually happened with Cleveland, they probably wouldn't look like a 0% DVOA team because they would probably play better than their actual value a lot of weeks, and they would end up looking like they were 10 or 15% better than average. But in reality, if we knew, like gods, we knew exactly how good they were, we would know they were actually just an average team. But... You know, they go on a run. They somehow go 9-7. and seven. It somehow wins the division. They go on a run in the playoffs. You can imagine this being possible. You can imagine an 8-8 eight and eight team. You can imagine the worst team in the league. Like, let's say they actually were the worst team in the league. Like, they didn't have a year where everything went right. But the actual ideal, if you knew how good they were, you were like, that's the worst team in the league. But the ball bounces their way in enough games that they go 8-8. Eight and Pittsburgh and Cincy and Baltimore have enough things go wrong that they all go seven and nine. You could imagine an eight and eight team going on a Super Bowl run with luck. Yeah, we've seen. If it you play before. the season a million yeah. times, that kind of thing is going to happen. Yeah, it's just it's 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 really fun to just kind of think about what that season would be like, especially you know sitting sitting there pretending to know what I pretend to know about the league. You know, it's like. I, I, w- I was wondering the opposite. Do you know which which team ever won the most of those simulations and if they actually won the Super Bowl that year? I can't remember which team had our best odds going into a year. It probably was the Patriots one year. Yeah. Um, I know there was a year we had San Diego, number one. They didn't win. Uh, but I remember that year writing uh, that we had them number one theoretically, but we didn't have a North Turner doesn't know what he's doing variable in our <laughs> projection system. Uh, I can tell you what the year looks like, though, where the, the team surprises by winning. Essentially, it looks like the 2015-2016 English Premier League soccer season. Right, and you wrote about that okay? in, the, in the book. Yeah. Leicester City. Leicester City is essentially what happens when you run a million simulations and there's one where the third or fourth worst team somehow wins the thing. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable perspective. I wish I knew more about – as the story unfolded throughout the year, I was like, I just wish I knew a little bit more about the Premier League to fully appreciate this because you knew something right. special was happening. You know what I mean? And, right, uh, and it feels special. And we talk did, about yeah. them as if they added all this talent and they got their act together and they were so much better than they were the year before, and it's wonderful to watch. But there's also a good chance that what this is is that they really aren't that much better than they were the year before. This is just, out of the thousand simulations, this is the year that everything went right for the team that was third or fourth from the bottom. And if we played the Premier League for a thousand years instead of whatever they played first division football in England for, you know, 50 or 60 years, but this is bound to happen. And it just happened this year instead of waiting 900 years for it to happen. 
So should I assume that Arizona is the team that won the most simulations this year? I thought it was going to be like that. Then it turned out I had made an error in the schedule when I did my early projections. Okay. And Seattle schedule looked harder than it really was. So Seattle ended up winning the most uh, hmm. Super Bowls, even though they do have to face a harder schedule than Arizona, because primarily because they have to face the Patriots at home with Tom Brady. Well, Arizona gets to face the, uh, they have to face the Patriots, you know, in Foxborough right. with Tom Brady. Well, Arizona gets to face the Patriots at home with Jimmy Garoppolo. Gotcha. But Seattle and Arizona are the two best teams in the league. They have the best projected average DVOA. They have the highest odds to make the playoffs. They have the highest average wins. They have the highest odds of winning the Super Bowl as well. You know, it's interesting because we, since it's a suspension that never ended. Has, I mean, I guess it's going to end now, but we actually talked about this last year, and according to your numbers, the Tom Brady suspension actually has very little um, very little impact on the Patriots season in general, correct? Right, and what you would expect from the Patriots, it's worth like half a win. Um, if it was the whole season, right, that's two wins, and that doesn't sound like a lot. But over the course of a 16-game season, you only have 16 games to, ch- you know, to change. And, and the fact is that when you predict teams before the season starts, you never predict teams to go any better than 12-4 and four or worse than 4-12. and 12. In fact, you really never predict them to go better than 11-5 and five or worse than 5-11 and 11 because there's just so much variation. That's- so maybe there were a couple of teams historically, you know, 91, Washington, the Chicago Bears in 85 that were good enough that even without good bounces of the ball, you would say that's a 14-2 and two team. But for the most part, that's just not something you can expect going, going into a season. So when you look at it that way, even the best quarterback in the league is only worth two or three wins because there's just not that many wins to take away from a team. And I think, you know, when we saw what the Patriots did with Matt Castle – we saw that there are plenty of good players on this team, and Belichick can coach the team well enough that they're not going to collapse completely without Brady the way the Colts did without Manning a couple of, of years ago. So, uh, so yeah, it only comes down to like half a win to have the, the Garoppolo uh, play the first four games. Unfortunately, of course, if that half a, if that half a win is one more loss, that could affect their seeding in the playoffs, and that right. could affect a close game in the AFC Championship game the way it did last year. So just because it's probably only worth an average of half a win doesn't mean it won't have an effect on their season. Just for comparison's sake, because we are talking about Tom Brady, how does a suspension like the one that Marcel Darius has affect the Bills or Le'Veon Bell affect the Steelers? I don't know, uh, two-tenths of a expected win, maybe? Okay, so really, really low then we're talking. Yeah, I mean, quarterback is by far the most important position. There's only – I tweeted about this like a couple of weeks ago um, when the J.J. The Watt injury happened, I think. The, there's, only, there's only a handful of players in the league who aren't quarterbacks who really would cost their team a full win over the course of a 16-game season, you know, as far as your expectations going into the season. You know, the top couple of corners, the top couple of pass rushers, J.J. Watt, Aaron Donald, Gronk, you know, the top receivers, uh, Julio Jones, Beckham, uh, Antonio uh, 
Right, the true superstar. Why am I blanking on his name from Pittsburgh? He's the best Brown. receiver in the league. Antonio Brown. Brown. I'm completely blind. I'm yep. Clearly, my mind has lost my memory of who the best receiver in the league is. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's not, there aren't that many players that are really worth uh, worth a lot in a 16 game season. I mean, they're worth a lot. It's just it doesn't look like a lot in terms of wins because we're only talking about 16 possible. So I was in the hospital, and I was selling this book for you to the nurse. I'm, I'm pushing it. And he's a big fantasy guy, and his number one question was, how do how, how owning this help me win my fantasy league? And I think not only did I sell him the book, but I also sold him on the premium stuff on the website. But it made me think that when I had you on, that I should really tee you up on that too because I think that you know, that's a great way uh, to sell books. And I, I think that's something that somehow when we're promoting this, we overlook sometimes. Well, we certainly believe in our projections. You know, we have the Kubiak projection system, and we have projections for all the skill players, you know, the fantasy football guys, in the back of the book with their stats from the last three years. Uh, we are admittedly better at picking out players who are going to disappoint than we are picking out players who are going to surprise because players surprising is often based more on the wins of a coach and changes in the depth chart, whereas players disappointing often depends more on, you know, age-related decline or players who had a big year last year regressing towards the mean. Uh, so those, I mean, those are all, I think, the values that it has for fantasy football is that I like to believe we have really good projections and people use our projections tend to do really well in their leagues. What we can't do, what no book can do, is help you with the poker game aspect of fantasy football. And that is a big aspect of fantasy football, which is knowing the guys in your league, knowing what they like to draft, to make sure that you get the best value for the draft picks that you have or the auction dollars that you have. No projections can help you do that part. That's kind of up to you. And there's a great article today on footballoutsiders.com I wanted to mention, too, uh, looking at some guys, Kubiak versus their ADP. I was reading it before uh, we went on the air, and some really good information there, just as another thing to throw out. You know, you, you have all these great writers who prepare the awesome team chapters, and I was wondering, as an editor, when you were reading them and kind of putting the book together, are there two or three things that jumped out that you would have never expected to read in the pages of the team? I know this is a really broad question, but it's kind of... It's interesting to me to find out what sticks out in your head as a thing that, like, wow, I did not expect that to be in the Lions chapter or whatever. Hmm, I'm trying to think. I mean, listen, one of the things about the way we do this is that I switch people around from year to year, from chapter to chapter, so you get kind of a different feel and a different attitude about teams from different years as different writers take them. Mike Tanier's chapters will have more jokes. Keon Fahey's chapters will have more scouting information. Uh, Scott Kazmar's chapters will talk, probably talk more about things like fourth quarter comebacks because that's his specialty. Uh, and chapters by a guy like Rivers McCown or Sterling Z sort of combine everything. And so, you know, each year you kind of get a little bit of a different outlook on the team uh, so that, you know, we're not saying the same thing every year. I thought Vince looking at Green Bay and the incredible variation of their defense from year to year with Dom Capers as the defensive coordinator, which is much more than the year-to-year variation that we've seen. You know, even though defense varies from year to year more than other teams, 
uh, more, sorry, more than offense, Green Bay varies more than other teams. And I didn't actually realize just how much that was until he wrote the chapter. Um, Arizona goes a lot through Bruce Arians' sort of insane record in close games, which at this point has been so strong for so long that I think that it's very easy to believe that it's not just random chance that he's particularly good at coaching close games. Um, and Miami, the Miami chapter by Mike Tanier is just freaking hilarious. Mike Tanier rules. I love Mike Tanier. He is, he is, I mean, I, I mean no disrespect to any of the other people who've ever worked for me, but he is the best writer who has ever worked for me. Yeah, he's awesome. As far as a, a writer, he's amazing. Awesome dude, too. Uh, you know, it was another interesting thing to me is uh, Football Almanac is predicting the 16-year drought that is the Bills' playoff drought having a driver's license to end this year. They're about 40% to make the playoffs. It puts them in the top. Uh, whoa, 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 I got to stop you there. Okay, stop they me. They still don't come out in the top six of their conference. Oh, they don't, huh? Seattle, Arizona. Nope. Okay. They, they're the seventh they're team. They're the seventh, you're right. They're the seventh team, and that's before what we've seen. See, it looks like the sixth team because the Colts are below them, but one of the AFC South teams has to make it in. They have to make it, that's right. So yep. they're actually seventh because for wildcard purposes, they're behind <laughs> Baltimore and Cincinnati. Poor and Bills. that's before everything that they've gone through for the last few weeks, right? That projection included the idea that they were going to plug a second-round pick into their defense. Uh, it didn't right. account for Marcel Darius' suspension. And it didn't account for the things, listen, the things that no stat projection system can account for that have been happening there over the last few weeks where it just looks like a dumpster fire. Uh, I do think the Bills are better than people give them credit for because their offense was surprisingly good last year, and the defense should rebound somewhat. I mean, a Rex Ryan team that's really strong on offense and bad on defense, was that was that we have no idea where that came from. That was weird. So I think they're better than people give them credit for, but I mean, I do think they're going to end up on the outside looking in again at the end of <laughs> poor, this year. Poor team. You know, last year I pressed you really hard to name a team uh, from outside of the playoffs that you thought would be in, and it was Minnesota was the team that you gave me, and that would worked out. Do you have one this year? Oh my God, it's really easy this year. Okay. Dallas and Baltimore. Dallas and Baltimore. Yeah, Dallas. Dallas mostly because with Baltimore. Uh, Dallas and Baltimore both qualified for two very rare things. Okay, so first, there's only nine teams since 1990 that went into a season with the same starting quarterback and number one receiver that they had the year before, but only got single-digit games out of both of those players because of injuries. Only nine teams. And Dallas and Baltimore last year were two of them. So to lose your number one receiver and your quarterback to injury is very rare. The other thing I'm going to say is Dallas was the lowest team in the league in terms of takeaways per drive on defense. Baltimore was 31st, and that is a stat that tends to regress towards the mean heavily from year to year, which indicates likely defensive improvement for both Dallas and Baltimore. Now, the reason why Dallas is a stronger playoff pick than Baltimore is easier division, right? better quarterback, and the likelihood that Des Bryant comes back from his injury is stronger much stronger than the likelihood that Steve Smith at his age comes back from his injury. But the Baltimore defense is better than Dallas's, better than people think, and better than it was last year. And who do you think is going to be the opposite? Is there a team out there with loads of expectations that you just don't see it statistically? 
I don't know if there's loads of expectations on Washington, but we have them dropping back towards the bottom of the lake. Yeah, that would hurt. I think that would hurt Washington. I think that, like you said, loads is kind of a weird word to use, but I think the expectations there are high enough that they would be crushed if they fall back to that part. The other team we have out of the playoffs, right? So if you look at the top 12 teams in our mean projections, we would have 10 playoff teams repeating. Right. And we know that with, we know that with the random variation of teams that it's likely that it won't be 10, it'll be 8 or 7. But if you look at the 10 that we have repeated, the two we have dropping out are Washington in favor of Dallas. And Denver. And Denver in favor of Baltimore. And that's the one where we're really shocking everybody this year is in our Denver projection. And the Denver projection is really simple. Great defenses don't stay great as long as you think. They were one of the 10 best defenses ever measured by DVOA in the last 25 years. And there's only one team in 25 years whose defensive DVOA has been better than minus 20% for two straight years, and that was Baltimore in 99 and 2000. Wow. Most of the time, a defense as great as Denver's will be very good the next year, but not historically great. And if Denver simply has the third or fourth best defense in the league, and their offense is what we expect it will be, given their quarterback situation, they're basically the Rams. Well, the weird thing about this season is that it's August 23rd, and everyone has still only played two preseason games, Uh, which means it still feels like forever before this season is going to start, which means I don't see any reason why you shouldn't get the Football Outsiders Almanac 2016. There's plenty of time uh, to read it, and we didn't even get into all the great college football information that's in there. You want to make a college uh, football playoff prediction based on what you have in the Almanac real quick? Well, we have Alabama number one. You know, I was I was surprised when we looked in. Uh, I looked in the ESPN the magazine preview issue, and I know that their stat people use a projection system that's somewhat similar to what Brian Fremo and Bill Connolly do for us. So their subjective writers had Alabama one, but their projection system had LSU one. But our stat projection system still has LSU two and Alabama one. So we have Alabama, LSU. Clemson and Oklahoma as the top four. Uh, and if you think that they all have to come from different conferences, then you have to go you have to go down. <laughs> you end up with Alabama, uh, Clemson, uh, Oklahoma, but then to get a fourth conference, you have to go all the way down to Stanford as ninth. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Well, yeah. But the Pac-12, the Pac-12 has the teams we rank ninth, 11th, and 12th. So it's not like it's a bad, and 14th, sorry, Washington is 14th. So it's not like the Pac-12 is a bad conference. It just doesn't have the teams that are at that top of college football the way that we see the SEC, uh, ACC, and Big 12. And then surprisingly, the Big 10 is not doesn't have teams near the top in our projections this year. I think Oklahoma is a really interesting team this year, too, in the way that they've kind of created a schedule you know, to kind of make up for the deficiency maybe of the conference, you know, the way that they are maybe a new way, uh, maybe they're going to try to blaze a new path into the playoff, you know, with Houston, Ohio State, you know, they don't have the, I think they have one game 
that they'll put on pay-per-view because they'll win by 70. But they don't have quite the typical non-conference schedule we're used to. And I wonder... Yeah, but they throw in Louisiana Monroe. Yeah, they have the one game, yeah. And he ended up with, I think, looking at our projections, I think they end up with a little bit of a leap, an easier conference schedule than Baylor, in particular because Baylor at Oklahoma, right? right? The That's a big deal. Those yep. are the two best teams in that conference, mm-hmm. so... Uh, and the the third best team in that conference is TCU, and they're also at Oklahoma. At Oklahoma, yep. Well, again, the in college uh, football home field advantage means more in college football than it does in the NFL. Yeah, and Oklahoma uh, will be uh, even tougher to play this year. They have, I think they have almost twenty thousand new seats this year. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Those college football seat, stadiums are so ridiculously yeah. massive. It just seems so weird to a guy from the Northeast where college football is not a thing. Yeah, that you would have like ninety thousand people. <laughs> but, I live, but yeah, it's huge. I live fifteen minutes from a, a technically a D one program, and they have to lie to say they get fifteen thousand people every week. You know, well, not all D one <laughs> programs are created equal. No, they are not. The Football Outsiders Almanac is valuable in PDF form, and it looks beautiful on an iPad. Uh, I read mine on the iPad. It looks beautiful. It's an unbelievable way to do it. If you're a uh, physical object in hand guy. Of course, it's available that way. And you can go to footballoutsiders.com to find uh, all the information on how to purchase the book. It doesn't end with the book, though. Footballoutsiders.com has premium content, uh, which is unbelievable and a great way, as we talked about earlier, to get an edge uh, on friends in fantasy football or just to understand the league uh, at a level that maybe you're not uh, used to understanding it. And of course, you can find uh, Aaron, who I rudely called Adam earlier, on Twitter. He's at F-O underscore A-S-C-H-A-T-Z. And if you're in Buffalo, as several of our listeners are, uh, I believe he does still appear regularly on the Show Up in the Bulldog show on WGR 550, so you might be able to hear him there. I feel like I laid a lot out, but there's got to be a few more things you want to make sure the listeners know in terms of buying this stuff and making sure that they get a chance to... Uh, to take advantage of all your unbelievable information. Well, I don't want to promise anything until it's ready, but there is going to be some pretty cool new premium content on our site, hopefully once September comes. So people should definitely be checking the site out, waiting for announcements about that. We're kind of excited, but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to promise anything until we know we can deliver it. Aaron, thank you so much for doing this today, and thank you so much for... Uh for uh, providing an almanac for me. That was so kind of you. And like I said, having a, a downtime, a week in the hospital, it was unbelievable just kicking back and, and reading that thing all week. It's uh, We don't do it justice in the 20, 25 minutes we spend here, how much unbelievable information there is, but tried to pro- provide some, and hopefully the listeners will seek out the rest. Thank you so much. I'm glad you dig it, man, and hopefully your uh, readers will check it out. All right, I want to thank Aaron Schatz and SL Price for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast, our other podcast this week, and last week's podcast with Joe Buck and Brian Curtis on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. We're still looking for your quirky, unique rules for fantasy football. And you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at Don Like Sports. Uh, don't forget that besides this show, 
We also have sort of an NFL preview type show uh, where we have interviews with Bruce Feldman and also with Danny Kelly from The Ringer. So for one last thing on this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. And instead of Don and I both uh, doing something for one last thing, we're just going to talk about the tragically hip for a second. If you're not from uh, Buffalo or Canada or somewhere where the tragically hip plays arenas, you might not know much about them, but they're a Canadian band. Many argue the greatest Canadian band of all time. Uh, certainly would probably be the winner of that if you even if you took Rush out of the equation. That's what I was going to ask. I, I, know, I told Michelle they're the biggest band in Canada, if not if not Rush. for Rush, right. And I think that that's basically what – that's probably accurate. Okay. Um, and so the story is is that their singer has brain cancer. And it's one of these brain cancers that they can't really cure. And they don't really know how long he'll have it before he dies. And his doctor said before the last show they played the other day – and we'll talk about that in a second – that he had just run into someone – who has the same disease that Gord does that he met while he was in medical school. And that was 20 years ago. So, I mean, you have that extreme of someone who's lived 20 years with this kind of a tumor. And then he says, he's met people in his office and said, all right, we're going to have surgery next Thursday. And they die before the surgery. Wow. So it's one of those cancers. I think that, you know, who knows? And uh, with that in mind, it's called like a glioblastoma or something, right? Yeah. With that in mind. and, And really before that, uh, the band had released a new album. Uh, well, the album didn't come out before the news, but the album had been recorded and ready to be put out, and a tour had, be, had been scheduled. Uh, the news came, and they decided to play the schedule, uh, play the tour anyway, and it kind of turned into a farewell tour that the band maybe never intended. Oh, okay. You know, the band had never said right. anywhere that this is our last tour. And people have made it a point to say that now that the concert's over. Right. People just assumed, I guess, that there was news that the singer has brain cancer that won't be cured. Uh, so it was sort of assumed that it was a farewell coast to coast to the country. I watched all the shows. There were 16 of them, I believe. And I watched them all. And they did a really cool set list format where... They started with four songs from some album. Okay. Then they would play four songs from the new album. Then they would take Gord Downey would take a small break and change his outfit. Yeah. Then they would play four songs from another album, and then uh, four more until they got to twenty. Then that would be the end of the first set. The first encore would be three songs from some album. And then the last encore would be two songs from another. And they kept that format all the way through with the exception of the last show. They did a third encore where they just played three other songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were locked in the trunk of a car, gift shop, and head by a century. Yeah. Where the fa- uh, final three. So as someone who watched, was a big fan, who watched the whole thing, I thought there, it was better in the beginning um, not necessarily. The band was better in the East Coast, tighter, maybe more in, in the groove. But they hadn't in the West Coast. They hadn't given up all their. You know, they, there was still stuff new every night. Okay. You know, as by the time you got to the middle of the tour, it's just kind of like, 
oh, okay, tonight's going to be the show with music at work and then fully completely and then wrote You know, it got really predictable. Yeah, I always felt a little bit like when they played Buffalo. I don't know if they felt the need to because it, I always felt the shows were a little greatest hitsy here. That was my only problem with them because I like a lot of the deeper tracks. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was a cool send-off if that is their last show. The one thing I will say, and I said this to my wife, like, right when it ended, I said, that's the best streaming experience I've ever had with anything. Like, we don't have CBC. You watch it on the CBC I watched it on, YouTube channel? Yeah. CBC Music YouTube channel? And I had, uh, I used my PlayStation, so I used the YouTube app on the PlayStation, and it was like watching high-def TV, and it never once stuttered or anything. So whatever CBC... Yeah, I basically did the same thing, but with Apple, Apple TV, TV right. and it worked amazing. Yeah. And I think unreal. I saw they had... Over 70,000 users or something. So good good on whoever made sure that worked. So 11 well. million people watched the concert in Canada, about wow. a third of their population. Wow. So look at I mean, there's not much for us to say. We've both been thoroughly entertained by the band and by their music and by Gord and Gord and Rob and Paul and Johnny and I think I named them all. Yeah, I said, if anything, I, I feel like maybe I took them for granted a little bit. Uh, it's almost like, and I'm not nearly as big a fan, but... Like Tom Petty, for a while, it felt like he came to Darien Lake, the local amusement park, every summer. So it's like, ah, if I miss Tom Petty this year, I'll see him next year. And the hip almost felt like that. Like it would hard, it would be hard to go a summer and not see them somewhere. And uh, so you'd maybe skip them one year or whatever. But it's a bummer. I think I've seen them. I guessed more than five times, probably less than ten times. But and I wish it was more now. And yeah, just about thirty. That's nuts. Somewhere between twenty and thirty. But you know what? The furthest concert away was Erie. Really? So I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how I would keep track. I've, I, you can if you go to thehip.com, you, if you can figure it out. Yeah, it, it, you I'd, go year by year. And, it'd be tough for me to remember, but yeah, you don't have that kind of memory. Not for that stuff, no. But yeah, I'm between twenty and thirty somewhere, and they were good shows. You know, my only, you know, my only. Negative is sometimes they would be a little bit too much the same as the last time. Right. But, you know, not everyone's Pearl Jam. No, not right. everyone has to be. I mean, speaking of, yeah. not to use their thing to talk about Pearl Jam, but Eddie did, like, while at the Chicago show, yeah. he mentioned Gord, which is cool. Cause, I mean, and Rob Baker, who's kind of the voice of the hip on Twitter, uh, acknowledged it and said but, that they were touched and thanked, thanked them. Yeah, I saw a video clip of it. It was really cool because, I mean, I don't know. You're fans of these two different things, but you have no idea that the other knows it even exists. So right. It was really nice. Well, cheers to the hip. Absolutely. Listen to 